CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. The ETF Edge podcast is sponsored by Invesco QQQ, supporting the innovators changing the world. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Welcome to ETF Edge, the podcast. If you're looking to learn the latest insights on all things exchange-traded funds, you're in the right place. Every week, we're bringing you interviews and market analysis, breaking down what it all means for investors. I'm your host, Bob Pisani, and today on the show, we'll discuss attractive bond alternatives. With the age-old 60-40 stock and bond portfolio unraveling, investors are clamoring for alternative sources of yield as bond funds continue to bleed. Where else can they turn? We'll discuss that. Plus, we'll talk a little about Twitter as Tesla CEO Elon Musk edges closer to a deal to take over the social media giant ahead of its earnings. Here's my conversation with John Mayer. He's the CIO of Global X, along with Todd Rosenbluth, director of research at ETF Trends. John, Global X has income equity portfolios that you say can replace bonds. I know we're going to get into a lot of complicated stuff, but just as an opener, tell us what these replacements look like. Sure. Thanks for having me on. When you look at an equity income portfolio, you're looking at a few sectors that are paying high dividends, quality dividends, dividends that coming from covered calls, uh, as well as just generally high dividends, not necessarily quality dividends. And then you have some preferreds. Those sectors can provide a yield that's pretty significant, somewhere in the 4 to 5% range. And that, that's pretty meaningful, particularly in a, in a market where we expect long-term rates to continue to rise. And obviously, the price of your bond is going to go down. So it's a tough place to be on the uh, fixed income side, much better on the equity income side from our point of view. Yeah. Now, Todd, it, John's got quite a list here uh, of alternatives, uh, quality dividends, master limited partnerships, real estate investment trusts, covered calls, uh, even preferreds are on this. Uh, is there evidence that investors are buying into them? I mean, are there actually inflows into some of these ETFs that do these sort of odd corners of the market? We're seeing that. So when we look at the data that we have at ETF Trends and ETF Database, we're seeing demand for covered call-related ETFs, ETFs like JEPI, which is J.P. Morgan's uh, covered call ETF. John's QILD is, is popular. We're seeing some other ones that, that are gaining traction. We're also seeing popularity for dividend-oriented ETFs, so higher-quality dividend ETFs as well as above-average yielding and lower-risk dividend ETFs are gaining traction this year. Okay, so we're getting investor interest in them, but I want John and Todd uh, to walk through a few of these alternatives in a specific manner. But first, I want to play an excerpt from the interview I did with Jeff Gunlock at the recent ETF conference. Here's what he told the participants to do with their bond funds. The bond market was grossly mispriced thanks to the government's manipulation. And so everything's being repriced. I've been advising 25% commodities, 25% cash, 25% stocks, and 25% long-term treasury bonds, believe it or not, because they're so ridiculously valued, but that's your deflation hedge. And so if you actually have a 60-40 portfolio, 2022 is your worst year to date ever for 60-40. But if you had the 25-25-25, you'd be far better off. So, uh, John, 25%, this is a pretty low weight for stocks, but you can you believe you have a much higher weighting in equities here. 
And if you're in the right equities, the key seems to be low volatility, high dividends. Why are you emphasizing these, what we call quality dividends? Sure. First of all, some people's portfolios are constrained, so they can't necessarily go with uh, Jeff Gunlack's suggested asset allocation. And many investors just need that yield. And the yield is coming from, like, first we can look at quality dividends. Quality dividends are an area that I, I believe can, at least on a relative basis, benefit in the current environment. Typically, they're more value-oriented. They have The companies typically have strong cash flows, high dividends, and dividends that potentially can grow. And the market is rewarding that, at least on a relative basis. And I think that's a more safe place to be than, than some other sectors in the broad Now, I want to get a little more specific. You, you have this breakdown of your equity portfolio here, and you specifically recommend Vanguard High Dividend Yield, VYM. You have, it's at 16% of your portfolio, and iShares Core Dividend Growth, that's 14%. What, what is it about these that you think is particularly attractive? Well, there, there's, there's just a handful of uh, high dividend paying, quality dividend paying ETFs out there. Now, with our portfolios, we take an open architecture approach. We don't only use Global X ETFs. So we believe these two ETFs have the ability, the companies within the ETF have the ability to have stable to growing dividends, and the companies have strong cash flows. So we think it makes a lot of sense for that bucket. But that's just one of five buckets that we have in our equity income portfolio. Now, another interesting group here, way in here, Todd, another interesting group that he's bringing up is uh, Master Limited Partnerships. Uh, this always shows up when people want higher yield, and yet they've had problems. Uh, years ago, they used to sell them on the grounds that, well, if the market goes down, they own the pipelines, it won't get hurt. And we found out that wasn't true. There's also some tax issues. This gets very complicated, right, when you're dealing with, with something like Master Limited Partnerships. It does. MLPs are, are different than traditional energy companies. They're often not found within the broader S&P 500. So if you were to look at AMLP, which is the Alarian MLP ETF, the largest of that group, you're going to get exposure to companies that you wouldn't have traditionally within the S&P 500, above average dividend yielding companies that have relative stability, that are going to have some bond-like characteristics, but also have that equity risk behind it. And, you, of course, there's this, always this tax question. Every time we do this, the viewers write in and say, you better tell the viewers, Bob, <laughs> about what the tax structure is like. Can you explain what the difference is? Sure. Here? We have, we have uh, a couple MLP funds, MLPA, which is a C-corp. So the taxes are paid on the corporate level. So what many clients are concerned with are they're going to get a K-1, they're going to have to extend their tax returns, it's going to be an issue. It's all done on the corporate level. So uh, that, that's one of the reasons that investors like the structure, the ETF structure with MLPs. Just one other comment on MLPs. MLPs are highly correlated to the movement in interest rates. So as interest rates go up, MLPs also potentially could go up. They also have some correlation to the energy market. They are seeing a pullback today because there has been a pullback in the overall energy market as well. Yeah. Now, what's interesting when I was talking to you about this, you have exposure to many sectors of the market, but Gunlock was very big on commodity ownership directly. He was talking about 25 percent ownership commodities directly. I don't see any direct commodity exposure here. Is there a reason when you're dealing with, with this? Or sure. you just wanted all equities? Well, it's, it's all equities, but... The MLPs do have some component of energy, yeah. um, and they are correlated to the energy market. So there would be—I'm not trying to match Gunlack's uh, asset allocation, sure. but you are getting some exposure there as well in terms of, of energy. Yeah. 
Um, and we're also seeing uh, another area, Todd, is REITs here. Now, why would REITs be advantageous in a rising rate environment? So what are we getting here when you get a REIT? With, with REITs, you're getting, obviously, you're getting equity exposure, dividend-paying companies. It's diversified. I, I saw some data recently from S&P that showed the exposure differences within the industry and now the sector group of REITs over the last 20 years. It's much more growth-oriented than had been. Uh, exposure to data center companies like American Tower with VNQ, which is the Vanguard REIT ETF, you're going to get broad exposure. You're going to get some retail REITs. You're going to get some residential REITs. But you're also going to get exposure to more of the growth-oriented companies that you find that can benefit from a strong economy through VNQ. So this is a, this is a good way. And it's actually been very popular the past month. It's VNQ has been seeing some strong yeah. inflows. Yeah. And, and, of course, REITs have been one of the better performing sectors. So, the, the, I mean, investors have caught on to this, at least this idea, for months now. So we do have exposure to REITs within some of the ETFs we have. DIV, which has a good amount of REIT exposure in it. Now, REITs can uh, pass on higher costs of, you know, rents and whatnot, um, but they, they could be uh, susceptible to the business cycle as well. So if there's ec economic slowdown, there, there's kind of a push and pull. So they can pass on higher costs, but if there's economic, economic slowdown, per perhaps people are renting less. Perhaps uh, people are renting stores much less or offices are being rented less. So there is some exposure, but very high yields, and there is inclusion in the portfolio. Now, I want to give another alternative, and I know we're throwing out a lot of ideas here, but uh, that's the way it's evolving, and we're going to try to sort it out at the end here. But covered calls is another area um, that gets very tricky. Now, explain covered calls and how this can, can help in a, in a rising rate environment. Sure. Uh, we have several covered call funds. One is QYLD. It's our biggest fund. It's about $7 billion in, in assets. It has a yield of approximately 12%, very high yield. What does it do? The underlying components are the NASDAQ 100. And what we do is we write at-the-money option, index options, on the underlying portfolio. Now, when volatility... Writing means selling, essentially. Yes, and okay. then you're, you're, the fund you're getting income. is getting income, and we're passing on that income to the shareholder. Now, you're somewhat um, cushioned on the downside, depending on the volatility in the market. There's been some volatility in the market, so it does better than the overall market in this environment, but you're capped on the but, but, Right. Selling a call obviously implies that you don't believe it's going to go higher than where it is right now. Right. The perfect... The S&P, for yes, or, or the, the, or the NASDAQ you're, 100. You're making a trade-off. You're, you're getting that income, and you're trading your upside for that income. A range-bound market is really the best market for a covered call fund. We have covered call funds on the NASDAQ, the S&P 500, the Russell 2000. So we think it, it, it makes a lot of sense if you believe the market's going to be range-bound and you're looking for that very high income. And this has been one of the more popular areas within the ETF space, uh, QILD being among them. But these are, this shows the benefits of the ETF structure. To buy individual companies and then sell calls as an individual investor and to do that on an ongoing basis. Enormously with, complicated. Extremely complicated, but with QILD, with JEPI, which is JP Morgan's product, with DIVO, which is an Amplify product, these covered call-related ETFs getting a lot of traction. We're finding a lot of interest with our client base right. as well. But it's not free. You're paying for this service to do. What, 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 what's the cost of uh, QILD? Um, it's approximately 60 or, 60 or so basis points. Um, but you're still getting that very high income. Everything is being done for you in the structure. Right. And you mentioned 12 percent, right? Right now, yes, yeah. because the volatility is a little higher, so you're receiving higher 
uh, income because of the volatilities related to, to the To sell options. that call, you can charge you get, a premium, you get more money, essentially, yeah. Yeah, at that point. I mean, the average viewer just hearing 12 percent. Wow, like sign me up for that one. And so, but what's the risks? That doesn't mean you're going to get 12% going forward. Now, you look at it from a total return perspective. So the upside is capped because you're selling your upside and receiving something for that upside. Now, the downside is somewhat cushioned. So if the S&P is down, say, 20%, this is down right now about half as much as the, excuse me, the, the NASDAQ, about half as much as the NASDAQ because we have elevated volatility. Now, um, Potentially, if volatility is lower, you, you can get a little more downside. Yeah, potentially. Um, Todd, preferred equities are also right. getting a lot of attention. Um, what is the concept behind preferreds, and why might that be more interesting than owning common stock? So preferred, you get some of the benefits through owning common stock and some of the benefits of owning fixed income. So you're getting income, you're getting, you're higher up in the, in the capital structure as a result of it. These primarily are all financial institutions. So there is some sensitivity to the economy, some sensitivity to it. I, we're showing some of the Global X products on the screen yeah. here. John can talk more about those products, but there's a number of products that are out there. iShares has PFF which is uh, another one of the products that are out there. These are also gaining as an alternative. You're, as a, yeah. You get some of the stock upside uh, that you would get. And you get a higher yield. You get a higher yield than you would from the, yeah. from the bonds as well. And yet, and yet, John, it doesn't mean you're going to outperform. PFFD has not been an outperformer this year particularly. No, you have to think about I'm what I'm talking about the, you know, your preferred yeah. ETF there. Um, it's not just ours. It's all the preferred space. Yeah. And if you look at what preferreds are, they're long-duration instruments. So if rates go up, the, the long end of the curve goes up, inevitably these are going to go down in price. But the underlying credits are strong. Seventy percent of the preferred market are financials. Even during the financial crisis, there was no defaults. Some, some preferred stopped dividends for a period of time, then restarted. But the underlying credits are very good. But another way to play it is variable rate preferreds. We have a fund called PFFV, where it's shorter duration than perpetual preferreds. And while it's still down, it's not down as much as PFFD. But if you look, you're looking at Gunlack's um, asset allocation, he's saying 25% long treasuries. In that scenario, preferreds would do very well. Yeah. It's a, a little bit difficult to sort this all out, but I want to I want to just chat a little bit about your uh, broad sector. So remember, you have an equity portfolio that is an alternative to bonds, and you've got several big sector-specific yeah. bets here: Vanguard Technology, 12 percent; Healthcare, 9 percent; Communication Services, 3 percent; and even your infrastructure, PAV, which you own, which is an infrastructure play, uh, as, as well here. Um, it, this is a, a pretty broad portfolio that you've got here, su suggested, and it's, I, I'm not sure I would call this defensive. I mean, you've got a fairly significant weight in technology, for example. So explain this, and wh where does that fit in with this concept sure. of what you're talking about as when an I, alternative to bonds? Got it. So when I was constructing this portfolio, I, I took it as a complete portfolio. Now, when you're looking at income, equity income, it's confined to a few sectors, whether it be utilities and REITs and mortgage-backed securities. And so... I want, if I wanted to build a complete portfolio, I wanted to add back a bucket that would correct for what you're missing in other portions of your portfolio. So whether it be technology or industrials or materials or healthcare, I felt like these were necessary components to put into your broad portfolio. Now, on a portfolio level, you're still getting about a 4.5% yield. 
But if you want to buy this as a complete solution, in certain market environments, if you're just exposed to equity income, you're uh, at, at a disadvantage. And this provides a more rounded portfolio. And that so was the you're, kind of you're trying to say it. essentially this is a complete portfolio this in a certain a way for an income investor. You're going to do you're going to get higher income than if you were to just own the S&P 500, for example. You, this is totally a complete portfolio. It's a more defensive portfolio. If you actually look at the performance, it's about down about three or four percent relative to the S&P 500, relative to the Nasdaq, and you're still getting that four and a half percent yield. So it's right. And the S&P is what one and a half percent right now. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So you four and a half versus one and a half is find a more defensive portfolio. That that makes a lot of sense to me. I'll tell you the problem I have, other than buying this as a pack. By the way, can you buy this as a as a, yes. actually a, a complete package? The the equity portfolio. Yes, the Global X Equity Income Portfolio. It's available on Investnet. It's available on TD Model Marketplace, Geo Wealth, Orion. So if you just Google Global X Equity Portfolio, yeah, on our website, uh, Global X, okay. it's model portfolios at the top. Okay. No People want more information can, sure. can can get it there. I'll, I'll tell you the problem I have. Uh, I always. I've been doing this for 32 years with CNBC, and I always pity the viewer who's trying to understand this. This is an awful lot of stuff to throw at the average investor. All they know is they're getting their quarterly statements, and their bond funds are down, and their stock funds are down, and they're going, what the, you know, what am I going to do here? So we've discussed today quality dividends, master limited partnerships, REITs, covered calls, preferred. This is a lot to throw at the average investor. Todd, can, can you make sense of this for us? I mean, is, is the answer to try to consider just buying a portfolio like they have and all wrapped up in a nice, neat little bow? How, how should investors look at all of these choices? It's a little confusing. It, it is confusing, and I, uh, John can, can confirm this or not, but I don't think people should swap out their entire 40% of their fixed income portfolio into something that's equity income oriented because then you're taking on so much more risk. So yes, you get some of that interest rate sensitivity. Yes, you get some of that credit risk, but there is more downside in investing in stocks typically than investing in a bond portfolio. So you wanna make sure that you understand each of these individual components, what you're getting, what you're not getting, and look at the individual ETFs and do your homework on that to make sure you understand what risk you're taking on, what that reward potential is, and the differences between a preferred and a covered call and an MLP and a dividend strategy. There are notable differences within those four categories that we're talking about. Yeah, and I don't. I think you're probably not recommending also that you swap out your 40% in bonds necessarily with well, this whole portfolio. I mean, you have to think about what I do. I'm a, I manage model portfolios. I did that when I was at Merrill Lynch for a long time. I do that at Global X. So I build complete solutions. You could argue this is a complete solution, or it could be a sleeve. But this could not just replace the 40. This is, could replace your whole thing. In the current environment, it could replace your whole thing. Um, in different the environments. The yield right now on this portfolio that we just talked about, with all of the, all of this stuff in it, is 4.5% right now? Uh, yeah, I think it's slightly below 4.5%. 4.5%. And the S&P is 1.5%, yes. right? So you're getting three percentage points right there. Would you not agree, though, Todd, that... All of this is nice, but if we actually go into a real slowdown, let's uh, avoid using the recession word, the R word, but if we really go to a very serious slowdown, all of the stuff drops. It doesn't matter. It's like, it's like 2000 again, where essentially everything, it's very hard to hide. Exactly. Know. So if you're looking to hide, you can look at ultra short oriented fixed income ETFs. Those are cash like with a little bit of income. Uh, and various providers offer those. You can have short-term corporate bond products. The equity exposure is a risk, and investors need to make sure they understand what risk they're taking on. John, uh, I 
Before I let you go, your social media uh, ETF, SOCL, has yes. a very significant holding in Twitter. It's 7% of the fund's assets. There's reports surfacing that, the, that Mr. Musk is in very serious negotiations right. with Twitter. Yep. Uh, they may be able to make a deal. They may not. But what's, what's your thoughts on, on that as a significant shareholder in Twitter? Well, it has about a 7% allocation. And if uh, Elon Musk takes it out at a higher price, it only benefits the shareholder. And then, it, then Twitter gets removed from the portfolio once the acquisition is complete. So from a portfolio level, from a shareholder point of view, it's a positive. It's a positive. Yeah. For SOCL, if Twitter gets taken out or taken private, um, you have to decide what replaces that, right? Well, it doesn't direct. Something doesn't. It gets rebalanced in terms of weightings, but yeah. it doesn't get direct, directly replaced. Uh, there will be new social media companies that come into the portfolio and go out of the portfolio based on the index methodology. So that just happens as a natural course of events. Okay, gentlemen, thank you very much for joining us. Now it's time to round out the conversation with some analysis and perspective to help you better understand ETFs. This is the Markets 102 portion of the podcast. Today we'll be continuing the conversation with Todd Rosenbluth from ETF Trends. Todd, thanks for sticking around with us. Uh, I wonder if you could give us some thoughts on the recently concluded ETF conference. We had 2,100 people there. I was very impressed with the, with the turnout. Um, bonds were the big concern. The RIAs, the registered independent advisors who attend these things, are all freaked out about that. But what else did you hear from the RIAs there? What's, what's on their minds? So at the Exchange ETF conference, which Advisor Circle and ETF Trends and ETF Database co-ran, we were hearing some interest about actively managed ETFs. There was a number of new asset managers that have entered the marketplace in the last couple of years. Capital Group, Federated, T. Rowe Price. Uh, and this was a chance for advisors to be able to kick the tires, so to speak, with those asset managers, learn about their products, learn how to compare them with traditional index-based products. And there was interest. In, in the sessions that I was a part of, those were well attended. There was a lot of questions uh, from the audience about that because, especially when the market's down, you're looking to see if you can get the benefits of the ETF structure but with an active manager calling the shots. So we heard about that and also inflation being top of mind, uh, how high it's been and investors looking for alternatives. We talked uh, during the main show about f alternatives to fixed income, but commodity ETFs in particular have been very popular in 2022. Uh, gold, but also more broadly diversified products. Th those sessions were well attended. We were hearing from advisors that they hadn't really paid attention to commodities. They hadn't had it as part of their traditional portfolio in years, but now they're exploring it or adding it in to get that benefits of diversification and, and in rising inflationary environment. So I have watched the RIA community, the registered independent advisors, grow for the last decade. A lot of these are, you know, old Morgan Stanley guys who retired and setting up their own shop or Merrill Lynch guys retiring. And I've watched the industry grow. I've watched most of them utilize ETFs because it's a lower cost structure so they can charge less. So they're charging less than the traditional uh, advisors. And yet now they're sort of at a crossroads. Now for the first time in 12 years, bond funds are down and stock funds are down and they're going to go back and face their clients. <laughs> And they're going to open their, their clients are going to open their quarterly statements and say, my heavens, what happened? And what did I pay you yeah, and what are we, for? What are we doing here at this point? So they, they, they seem to be a little bit worried about that, even though the ETF business is growing, the RIA business is growing. Um, yet I wonder how well they're going to handle uh, a downturn in the market with, with their clients. 
Yeah, well, this is an opportunity for them to demonstrate that they, they're adding value. Obviously, not just in picking individual securities. Hopefully, they're doing better than the broader marketplace um, by using some tactical shifts to the portfolio, but adding value as well. Hold hand, I'm sorry, hand holding to make sure that the investors are sticking for the longer term, uh, as, as I, who we both admire, Jack Bogle, would say, you got to ride this out, stick with it, uh, and perhaps shift towards more value oriented parts of the portfolio, shift towards more defensive parts of the sector to, to tread water in this down market before having a chance to recover. In a sense, this is the problem all active management faces, and RIAs, to extend our active management, essentially. It's the problem the hedge fund people have always said. Okay, fine, maybe we're not going to outperform or do amazing in a low volatility environment, but when volatility picks up, oh, we can move really fast and nimbly. And historically, the evidence is hedge funds don't actually right. outperform. So th this is an interesting test to the extent that RIAs are active managers, how many of them are actually going to be able to outperform versus me being self-directed and just owning the S&P 500, for example. I think most people who use RIAs are a little smarter than the average person using, say, a wirehouse because they at least have the sense that these RIAs are lower cost. They're not going to be charging, pick a number, one and a half percent. They're likely charging one percent or below. So even that, the, the investors know that. So in one sense, they understand the importance of keeping costs low. And yet at the same time, I wonder how much more outperformance an RIA is going to be able to pull off in this environment. Well, if you're doing it based on, if an advisor is doing it based on the risk profile of that investor base, so if you're less concerned about the risk, then you might be taking a more aggressive stance with your clients. But there are RIAs that I know that have had a more defensive portfolio, not more fixed income than equity, but having more defensive equity, higher dividend-paying stocks that are, that are performing relatively well this year, having exposure to commodities that are, that are performing relatively well. There's an opportunity to be able to add value knowing your client. Uh, instead of just having putting them into a basic model, but having something more tailored based on risk tolerance. And that's what I think many advisors are looking to do. Why? What do you see for the rest of the year in terms of, of flows? Is there anything that's really st stuck out to you? And sometimes flows are useful in understanding things and sometimes not. I usually look for really longer term trends than a month or so, and it's still a little early in 2022. But is there anything that's really stuck out to you? Well, we're, we're on pace to have what could be uh, either another record year or probably just miss that record in terms of net inflows, perhaps $800 billion of net new money coming in without fixed income having much, uh, carrying much of the water that's there. Because of the rising rate environment, because of the concerns of how aggressive the Fed is going to be, we're seeing fixed income underweight uh, or the exposure to fixed income through ETFs be underweighted. I think that's going to recover. I think investors are going to get a better handle on how aggressive uh, Powell and team are going to be, and then looking towards ETFs that can be able to benefit from it. We've seen strong demand for senior loan ETFs. We've seen strong demand for these less interest rate sensitive products. I think we're going to see fixed income, if they get closer to their 20 percent overall share of the marketplace, then we could perhaps see a record year. If, if investors continue to stick with the equities. Yeah. It seems totally dependent on two things. Number one, the glide path for rate hikes. I, I mean, a month ago, I had people expecting that the Fed funds rate would be 2% by the end of the year. Now we have people at 
two and a half, and there are people at three percent. Right. That suddenly, that changes the game a lot, particularly for, for, high, revenue growth stocks, but stocks that may have very, low earnings. Right. The Kathy Wood stuff. So. It kind of throws everything up in the air. The other is the whole China story right. here. Um, you know, this whole thing with this COVID lockdown is really playing havoc. With, I think this is one of the reasons oil's stocks have been down recently because the growth story for commodities and around the world. If, if you're going to shut China down again, that's going to have a significant impact. So there's an unusually large number of wild cards here. So because there's an unusually wide divergence of outcomes that you can get. There's a big difference between. You know, two percent Fed funds rate, you know, and three and a quarter exactly Fed funds rate, and that's going to impact various parts of the of the ETF ecosystem between emerging markets, fixed income, and and traditional. All of which says, folks, that we're just going to have to be uh, patient and used to getting the uh, the VIX over 20. I think it'll stay a lot between 20 and 30 for you know a good part of the year until we figure out all of this. And Todd, as always, appreciate um, your insights. Uh, and wisdom on this. Todd Rosenbluth is the director of research at ETF Trends. And everybody, thank you for joining us on the ETF Edge podcast. Invesco QQQ believes new innovations create new opportunities. Become an agent of innovation. Invesco QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.